So we were just finishing chapter 27 and then going on into chapter 28. Um, and I believe we're on text 25. So this is uh, Kafila Dave continuing. In the dreaming state, one's consciousness is almost covered, and one sees many inauspicious things. But when he is awakened and fully conscious, such inauspicious things cannot bewilder him. The influence of material nature cannot harm an enlightened soul, even though he engages in material activities because he knows the truth of the absolute and his mind is fixed on the supreme personality of Godhead. So that's uh, an important thing to keep in mind that when we say things like, you know, a pure devotee um, is, uh, is perfect, we may use that word, right? Or we may even use a word like shakshadharitvena, that they are uh, um, on the level of the Supreme Lord. Of course, later in that verse, shakshadharitvena, asamastashastra, Kintu praburya priya, why are they like that? Because they're priya, they're dear to the Lord. So that doesn't mean that uh, a great devotee doesn't maybe quote a verse incorrectly or uh, you know, forget something. The, the perfection, there was a discussion with Srila Prabhupada and Jai Dwaita Swami about this once in Mayapur. The perfection is that they have uh, no other desire than the desire to serve the Lord. Right? So, um, that's, that's the perfection. And it takes one to know one a bit. And that's why there's these cautions in the Shastra for us who are not on the level of uh, great devotees to be careful not to compare them to us. Well, I forgot, it. I forgot that verse and so did he or she. <laughs> so we must be, you know, we're kind of like the same. Right? But here it says that the influence of material nature cannot harm an enlightened soul. Even though he engages in material activities, you know, the great devotees still have to eat, still can get sick, still can, um, you know, whatever. Um, so it can seem similar. Um, but it's, it's, it, there's a volume of difference in one's consciousness. Uh, and that's, or rather consciousness, yeah, or one's love, one's heart. So therefore we're uh, cautioned to be careful, to just like in the uh, nectar of instruction, there's a caution about this, right? Anyone know those verses? I guess we can look them up real quick. Um, Other books by Srila Prabhupada, Nectar of Instruction, I think we'd be around verse number five. One should mentally, well, here's a way that we should respect, one should mentally honor a devotee who chants the holy name, offer obeisances to those who have taken diksha, um, and faithfully worship the pure devotees who, um, who are, have undeviated devotional service and who are devoid of the propensity to criticize others. And then the next verse, um, it says that being situated in his original Krishna conscious position, a pure devotee does not identify with his body. 
Such a devotee should not be seen from a materialistic point of view. Indeed, one should overlook a devotee as having a body born in a low family, a body with a bad complexion, a deformed body, a diseased or infirm body, etc., uh, etc. Et so there's that warning that uh, don't, don't look in, in a materialistic way or in a bodily conscious way. So, um, next time your spouse criticizes you, you can tell her or him, don't uh, look at me in a materialistic way. See how far that gets you. So the next verse, uh, anything on that verse? Next verse says, when a person thus engages in devotional service and self-realization for many, many years and births, he becomes completely reluctant to enjoy any one of the material planets, even up to the highest planet, which is known as Brahmaloka. He becomes fully developed in consciousness. Hmm? Uh, and here Prabhupada makes a distinction in the purport. He says that anyone engaged in devotional service to the Supreme Personality of Godhead is known as a devotee. But there is a distinction between pure devotees and mixed devotees. Confirmed. A mixed devotee engages in devotional service for the spiritual benefit of being eternally engaged in the transcendental abode of the Lord in full bliss and knowledge. In material existence, when a devotee is not completely purified, he expects material benefit from the Lord in the form of relief from material miseries, or he wants material gain advancement in knowledge of the relationship between the Supreme Personality of Godhead and the living entity, or knowledge as to the real nature of the Supreme Lord. Now, none of those sound very bad, do they? Don't they? They sound pretty good, right? When a person is transcendental to these conditions, he is called a pure devotee. He does not engage himself in the service of the Lord for any material benefit or for understanding the Supreme Lord. His one interest is that he loves the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and he simultaneously engages in satisfying him. So that's a very high level. And it depends on our view of this. Uh, Lord Chaitanya encouraged us to have this kind of attitude when he says, Manma Jamani Jamanishwari Bhavatad Bhaktira Haituki Twai. That he says, so but when he says, Jamani Jamani. Right, birth after birth. That means he doesn't even care about being um, emancipated or getting mukti, because even that is like, in one sense, on a very high level, that's still there's some I consciousness there. Um, but the but Lord Chaitanya is praying, and then he, then he's really praying even more clearly in the very last verse. Ashlishasvaparatam Adarshanam, he doesn't care if you, if you appear before me or you, you don't appear before me. You, uh, you crush me by your embrace or leave me brokenhearted by not being present before me. None of that matters. I'm, I'm your servant in any condition. So that's, you know, that's a very high level. Um, one time a devotee went up to Srila Prabhupada and said, Srila Prabhupada, we don't, I don't want to go back to Godhead I just want to serve you here, birth after birth. And Prabhupada looked at him seriously and said, do not make me come back to save you. <laughs> so, so yes, our general you know, uh, encouragement is back home, back to Godhead. And a matter of fact, if we, if we get to those verses today, there's some beautiful descriptions of the spiritual world 
And they're there to encourage us. And in many places, Prabhupada says that we should desire to go back to God. We should desire not to be here in this place. Um, so there's not a contradiction in those instructions. There's just different levels of, uh, of consciousness. Because here in the next, uh, next paragraph, Prabhupada clarifies it. And when he says the highest example of pure devotional service is that of the gopis in Vrindavan. They are not interested in understanding Krishna. Because that... Srila Prabhupada is hinting that there's a little jnana mishra bhakti there. We should want to understand Krishna. We should study the Shastra. We study, right? Um, but the gopis, they, you know, um, one time Srila Prabhupada, was, he kind of emphasized this when someone said, well, what if Krishna is not God? He said, oh, I still wouldn't change anything I'm doing in my life. <laughs> he said, it's such a nice lifestyle. It's a little different, slightly different, but... You get the point. Uh, the gopis are not interested in understanding Krishna, but only in loving him. That platform of love is the pure state of devotional service. Unless one is advanced to the pure state of devotional service, there is a tendency to desire, to desire elevation to higher material planets. Now, we should higher material position. That we should try to avoid even now. Right? That uh, we hear about Indra Loka, and we said, oh, that sounds really cool, the Somaras, and you live for so long, and the, the enjoyment is so subtle, and uh, so many, of the, you know, you don't have to pay taxes, you know, and your car doesn't break down, all these things that, you know, we, we go through in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, no, we should not. Uh, a mixed devotee may desire to enjoy a comfortable life on another planet with a greater span of life such as that in Brahmaloka. These are material desires, but because a mixed devotee engages in the service of the Lord, ultimately, after many, many lives of material enjoyment, he undoubtedly develops Krishna consciousness. And the symptom of this Krishna consciousness is that he is no longer interested in any sort of materially elevated life. He does not even aspire to become a personality like Lord Brahma. So ultimately, we just want to fill our heart with bhakti, with uh, devotion. But we should not neglect this, this shastra. We should not neglect learning verses and all those things that help us be fixed in consciousness. We'll hear more about that later next chapter. Anything on this point? That's where oh. it works. Vaidhi Bhakti, we have to follow, right, Prabhu? So there's Vaidhi, yeah, so in, there's three stages of Bhakti. Uh, this is mentioned in the Nectar of Devotion. Um, sadhana, uh, Bhava, Bhava, and Prema. And in the Sadhana stage, there's, general, there's generally considered two stages, and one is Vaidhi, and one is Raganuga. And so, um, Vaidhi is following the instructions of the spiritual master um, and uh, studying the Shastra, as you're saying, and, and following all the rules and regulations. Um, Raganuga is, is a very, actually, even though it's still in the sadhana stage, it's, it's still a very elevated consciousness where one um, becomes attracted to one of the residents of Vrindavan and wants to anuga, follow in the footsteps of their rag, their... Uh, incredible attachment, um, attraction to, to the Lord. 
Um, but even those, even then, you wouldn't know who is a Raganuga Bhakta and who's not because Seva uh, Sadaka Rupena, Siddha Rupena, Chaturhi, that the uh, devotee will still, uh, the way Prabhupada calls it in the Nectar Devotion, they'll still behave like a neophyte, right? Even if they're on the spontaneous platform. So externally, um, they'll act like the Goswamis did, right? They were, they were chanting on their beads, they were putting on tilak, they were attending artiques, they were doing all that. Internally, the same Goswamis, the example is given of Rupa Goswami, was meditating on his form as Rupa Manjari, an assistant of the Srimati Radharani. But again, that's, so, so still, we don't walk around, uh, even if like Ma Mantrapu, if you're on that level of Raghunuga Bhakti, you're, you're still not gonna be walking around, Radhe, 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 you know, and uh, you know, um, like that, or dressing in a sari, you know, uh, like that. Because uh, Seva, Sadaka Rupena, Siddha Rupena Chaturi. Michael? Yes, Hare Krishna. I, it's always curious to me how uh, this sort of uh, uh, approaching perfection looks from the outside as opposed to how it looks from the inside. Right. And is it true that as one advances, one has an increasingly lower appreciation for oneself and a higher appreciation for everyone else? Uh, sort of. Um, usually what we try to explain, because devotees, sometimes neophyte devotees especially, will um, kind of like, you know, I am lower than the worm in stool, you know, like um, uh, paraphrasing, or not necessarily paraphrasing, but quoting someone like Krishnadas Kapiraj Goswami, right? And really what it leads to is just like some mental gymnastics with really no realization, right? So the great devotees of the Lord, they don't have what we would call, you know, in, in the West, well, not in the West, in the world, a low self-esteem per se. But they have humility. What's humility in Sanskrit? Dainya, yeah. And Dainya is based on, um, well, again, there's different stages, just like in, right? But Dainya, the basic level is just understanding how great Krishna is, how wonderful Krishna is, how amazing Krishna is. And then we think about ourselves in comparison, and naturally we, uh, <laughs> there's a big difference, right? So that's one way of, uh, of cultivating dainya. Then, and then in the, now we're back to the shikshasta again. In the second verse, what does it say? The second verse? Second verse. Nam namakari bahuda nijasarva shakti. So it's talking about how the holy name has all these great, you know, sarva shakti, all energies, all power, right? Um, uh, and it goes on glorify. And then the last name, the last uh, few words says, but I am so unfortunate, Nanuragaha. We, again, that word raga that we just quoted the other day, raganuga. So Nanuraga, I don't have any attraction. So, and then the next verse is not, uh, so then what is the 
what should be the uh, outcome of having that realization? And to be constantly chanting Krishna's name. And, and to do that, to be uh, thinking oneself lower than the straw on the street, more tolerant than a tree. And importantly, perhaps most importantly, ready to give all respects to others without expecting respect in return. Uh, and when one has that consciousness, so the outcome of some realization that I'm not a great devotee is not to fake it till you make it, exactly, <laughs> but to um, have some serious, some sincere uh, humility. So to further answer your question, Michael, uh, there's, a saying, there's a statement that the, um, uh, the great devotees, the Uttama Bhagavats, they see, they, are, they see Krishna everywhere. Uh, uh, and they uh, see everyone as a devotee of Krishna except themselves. Yeah, now that, that is not what we are meant to do. We are meant to uh, make distinctions. The Supreme Lord and worship him. The uh, devotees and serve them the innocent people and uh, try to enlighten them and the deeply envious people and try to avoid them. So there's a difference. So therefore, when Srila Prabhupada, who's on the Uttama Bhagavad platform, he comes down uh, voluntarily to the Madhyama platform in order to help the world. All right? And he very, very rarely very rarely showed his inner ecstasies, his inner mood. A few times, maybe three, four times, he, uh, he, when he, especially somehow it came out when he was chanting that song that we chanted in the beginning, Jaya Radha Madhava, that he, um, he just became stunned a few times. Um, and then uh, he, sometimes he was silent for a little while, and then sometimes when he'd come out of his uh, trance, he would just say, chant Hare Krishna. Right, yeah, and things like that. Did you want to continue? I just wanted to ask if uh, being on the highest platform, does not, that not benefit the world? If you have to come down from that platform in order to benefit the world? Um, if, you, if you really, really, yes, you could, of course, a great devotee benefits the world um, just by being here. Uh, uh, Yudhisthira said about Vidura that he's like a walking place of pilgrimage. Right? What is it? Tirvanti, Tirtakurvanti. Is that how it goes? Right? So just his presence um, is great. And he even says sometimes that they purify the holy places. Um, but if you really actually, so for us, it's kind of like, yeah, he probably sees everyone as devotee except himself. <laughs> right? But if you really think like that, where is the impetus to try to tell someone, surrender to Krishna? Because already, they already are, you know, because they're thinking in the most um, existential way that ultimately everyone's a devotee of Krishna. So uh, they volunteer, voluntarily take on this other consciousness in order to do what Srila Prabhupada did, you know, come on the Jaladuta and translate so many books and give so many classes and all those things. So there's, there's also a difference between a Bhajananandi and a Gosyanandi. 
<coughs> Gosyanandi is the person who, uh, the pure devotee who uh, helps others, and the Bhajanandi focuses on their own bhajan, their own Krishna consciousness. Is that right? My devotees actually become self realized. This is uh, text 28 and 29. Uh, by my unlimited causeless mercy. And thus, when freed from all doubts, he steadily progresses towards his destined abode, which is directly under the protection of my spiritual energy in unadulterated bliss. That is the ultimate perfectional goal of the living entity. After giving up the present material body, the mystic devotee goes to that transcendental abode and never comes back. Text 30. When a perfect yogi's attention is no longer attracted to the byproducts of mystic powers. So, right, we understand that, that when you really are a pakka uh, yogi, you actually develop some mystic siddhis which are manifestations of the external energy, his progress towards me becomes unlimited, and thus the power of death cannot overcome him. So there's just, if you think, you know, because we always talk about how we shouldn't be attracted to this material world. Well, if you could actually get mystic powers, that's really cool. And so when he's not attracted to that, that's very good. So now we are beginning uh, Kapila's instructions on the execution of devotional service. And the first nine verses talk about the, um, first 12 verses actually, talk about the practice of a yogi. The personality of God had said, my dear mother, O daughter of the king, who's, who's her father? Sayamuvamanu. Now I shall explain to you the system of yoga, the object of which is to concentrate the mind. By practicing this system, one can become joyful and progressively advance towards the path of the absolute truth. One should execute his prescribed duties to the best of his abilities and avoid performing duties not allotted to him. One should be satisfied with as much gain as he achieves by the grace of the Lord, and one should worship the lotus feet of his spiritual master. So in the purport, Srila Prabhupada writes, Uh, Swadharma Chadarnam means that one must discharge the prescribed duties of his particular division of society faithfully and to the best of his abilities. One should not accept another's duty. If one is born in a particular society or community, he should perform the, the prescribed duties for that particular division. If, however, one is fortunate enough to transcend the designation of birth <coughs> in a particular society or community, and uh, by being elevated to the standard of spiritual identity, then his swadharma, or duty, is solely that of serving the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The actual duty of one, is to advance in Krishna, uh, of one who is advanced in Krishna consciousness is to serve the Lord. As, one is one, as long as one remains in the bodily concept of life, he may act according to the duties of social convention. But if one is elevated to the spiritual platform, he must simply serve the Supreme Lord. That is the real execution of Swadharma. Okay, so in the, uh, you might recall this word Swadharma uh, if you're, uh, you like to read the Bhagavad Gita because it comes up in the Bhagavad Gita. So this is from the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, verse 31. 
And Prabhupada says there are two kinds of swadharmas, which is basically what Srila Prabhupada is saying in this other purport. As long as one is not liberated, one has to perform the duties of his particular body in accordance with religious principles in order to achieve liberation. When one is liberated, one's swadharma, specific duty, becomes spiritual and is not in the material bodily concept. In the bodily conception of life, there are specific duties for the brahmanas and kshatriyas, respectively, and these duties are unavoidable. Such swadharma is ordained by the Lord, and this will be clarified in the fourth chapter. On the bodily plane, swadharma is called varnashrama dharma, or man's stepping stone to spiritual under, for spiritual understanding. Human civilization begins from the stage of varnashrama dharma, or specific duties in terms of the specific modes of nature of the body obtained. Discharging one specific duty discharging one specific duty in any field of action in accordance with the orders of higher authorities serves to elevate one to a higher status of life. So there is also another place Prabhupada talks about conditional and constitutional swadharma. Okay, so conditional is relating to this body and constitutional is relating to our relationship with Krishna. Right? So the the Essentially, what we want to do is we want to make our constitutional swadharma, all the things we have to do with this body and our occupation and, and taking care of our family and all that, and it got cold again, uh, and uh, I think, and um, make that uh, favorable to our constitutional swadharma. Because it's not easy. It's, it's not easy for most of us to immediately only only uh, work on our constitutional swadharma, you know, just uh, uh, 24 hours a day um, be absorbed in devotional service, especially, um, well, at least looking at this room, uh, brahmacharis and sannyasis, or brahmacharinis and sannyasis, uh, they have a more uh, freedom to do that because of the nature of their lifestyle, where they're not worrying about house and home and et cetera. Uh, uh, Palaka Prabhu was telling me, you know where the uh, the boga is kept? That room there, near the uh, kitchen, right? Anyone know that room where they have the mixer? That used to be the brahmachari ashram, and you could fit about 20 brahmacharis in there. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, brahmacharis can just sleep anywhere. <laughs> that, was, that was my training, you know. And all my possessions fit in a box this big. So, um, so there was therefore there was more time to uh, absorb oneself to absorb oneself in the constitutional swadharma, right? But we can also look at our lives and uh, try to make try to make sure one that <clears throat> our conditional swadharma is um, in sync with, favorable to. Uh, you know, just look at our, our, how we spend our day and uh, how we spend our money and, and how we dress and how we talk and, and all those things and um, try to uh, wed them as much as possible to who we really are. A soul who's eternally a servant of Krishna. So some thoughts on that? No? Okay. And then we'll get back to the verse. Text three. One should cease performing 
conventional religious practices and should be attracted to those which lead to salvation. And now it's warm again. Uh, one should eat frugally and should always remain secluded so that he can achieve the highest perfection of life. And in the, per whatever, it's okay. The non-permanent appearance of happiness and distress and their disappearance in due course are like the appearance and disappearance of the winter and summer seasons. One should, uh, I'm okay, one should tolerate them without being disturbed, Krishna says in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. So, yeah, well, actually maybe you could, yeah, because I'm going to be on an airplane in a few hours and I'd rather not be sick. Let's get really serious here. <laughs> um, the next important phrase is, in the purport, mita medyadinam, which means that one should eat very frugally. <clears throat> we're, we're, <clears throat> of course, we're reading this the day of a feast. <clears throat> it is recommended in the Vedic literatures that a yogi eat only half what he desires according to his hunger. If one is so hungry, that he can devour one pound of foodstuffs, then instead of eating one pound, he should consume only half a pound and supplement this with four ounces of water, which I think one-fourth water and one-fourth, well, for this year, four ounces of water and one-fourth of the stomach should be left empty for the passage of the air in the stomach. So the reason I'm reading that is, um, see if you've had this experience. You know, we get accustomed to eating a certain amount of prashadam. I'm, I'm looking around the room here, everyone takes prashadam. I'm eating a, a certain amount of food. Um, but it, the body is very adaptable. That's been my experience. I remember when I, um, when I, would just, when I was in India, when I would just do uh, nirjal once a year, right? Nirjal means no, no food and no water. And there's one akadasi per year that we would do that, usually around June time. It may be maybe late May this year, just because the schedules, it's Bhushottamas. Um, there's an extra month added later sometime in the, in the year. Um, but it's generally around June. And I found that it was really hard to do that if I only did it one time. But if I got in the habit of doing it every Akadasi, oh gosh, it was like a, uh, it was, I was going to say it was like a piece of cake, but that would be a bad analogy. Uh, it would be really easier because the body, the body, my body started adapting to regular fasting. And I think we, we may experience this also. Not that, you know, not that we, sh we should, first of all, we should take prasadam to our full satisfaction. You know, we don't get a lot of sense gratification in, this, uh, in, in the vows that we take. So, you know, taking prasadam... Um, shouldn't be uh, something that gets us too mental. But at the same time, for health reasons and for Krishna conscious reasons, as we're hearing even here about a yogi, we could experiment eating a little less. See what happens. Generally what will happen is that at first the body is going to revolt. It's going to like say, what the heck are you, especially in the mind, you know, right? Because the stomach talks to the mind and says, what are you doing to me? Right? And you might even get a headache for a day or two. It's possible, um, it happens. And then after about two or three, four days, you, your body has become, or I don't know, it's different for each 
different people's bodies. But body becomes accustomed to it, and one has the same amount of energy. You know, if one eats the right amount, the right things, right? And, you know, doesn't everyone ask you, you're a vegetarian, where do you get your protein? Right? Isn't that? Yeah, and I always say, have you ever heard of dal? <laughs> right? So many things. Um, but the point, the point is that we may, the mind and the amount that we eat are connected. And uh, one, we do have the power to adjust that. Right? And especially if we start feeling, uh, you know, tires going, running around our midriff, and especially as we get older, then uh, we might want to consider um, uh, how, we, how we eat. Other, the other tips are um, to really try to eat in the mode of goodness. Usually if you, uh, what do they say, uh, when I went to one uh, um, naturopath clinic outside of Bangalore, and they said you should... Uh, Chew your solids and drink your, no. Drink your solids and chew your liquids, right? And what is it? Sometimes you're supposed to, the Ayurveda says uh, 32 times you should chew something before, you know. If you, if you do eat like that, you're definitely going to eat less because it takes so long. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, um, it's, it's, because uh, part of our devotional service is called prasada sevaya, right? It's, it's a service to take prasadam. It's not just meeting a bodily necessity, or neither is it just, you know, uh, gratification of the tongue. It's actually uh, honoring that Krishna has uh, tasted this food stuff. Any thoughts on this? It's well. Any thoughts? Yes. Sometimes people associate strength with what is eaten but it's strength is a function of the mind is what I feel is my personal feeling it's not whether you are a vegetarian or you are a non-vegetarian that your bodily strength is going to be determined by that mm. that is a personal feeling that I have but yes um, you know I'm not going to get into physiology here but we do know that there's a uh, um, what do they call it? A plant-based life, a plant-based diet, is that what, right? Um, has a lot of health benefits. And what to speak of karmic benefits, right? Um, yeah. And uh, meat eating and things like that are really, uh, can be very detrimental to one's health. Again, what to speak of one's karmic longevity <laughs> and things like that. Or karmic uh, experience. Uh, exposure in this life and especially in future lives, right? Um, and devotees, you know, we should be careful that we eat, uh, um, uh, we honor a balanced diet, not too many fried things, not too many sweets, especially as you get older, right? When someone's joined, uh, first coming to Krishna consciousness, they should, you know, Prabhupada said they should eat up to their neck. They should have to waddle home like a duck in a... Right, <laughs> because it's so purifying, and it's and you know they, so I used to you know eat six or seven gulab jamuns at a <laughs> sitting or something like that. I don't do that anymore. That was when I was you know a teenager. <clears throat> but uh, you know this is this is of course describing a yogi, but a devotee is you know careful about uh, about um, what they what they eat. That makes sense.
But especially on feasting days, you know, we should eat, uh, we should take a feast with great satisfaction, honoring, like today, Lord Ramachandra, or uh, Janmasthami, Lord Krishna, or spiritual master on Vyasa Puja Day, and whatever. And <clears throat> Srila Prabhupada wasn't so, you know, he would say sometimes, uh, Ikadasi feast, right? Because you can make all kinds of wonderful preparations on Ikadasi. And although the tradition was that most people would fast on Ikadasi, <clears throat> his point was, uh, if we're fasting and all we're doing is thinking about how we're suffering so much all day, <laughs> then what's the use, <laughs> right? Because the idea, the most important part about Akadasi is, uh, is Govinda Smarnam, is remembering the Lord, right? So if you're not eating, like today, I think many of us have not had breakfast because it's, we're fasting for Ramanomi. So it just means, wow, I got some extra time on my hands, right? For hearing and chanting about Lord Ram. TK? Anything else on Prashadam? It's usually a popular topic. Yes, Prabhu, can you pass the mic? Just behind. Um, my experience is uh, during Ekadashi is when we fast, uh, when we eat, we, we get like uh, some satisfaction, but like uh, I feel more energetic on Ekadashi days when more you fast. More energetic when energetic. you fast on, on uh, Ekadashi days uh, and when you involve in some service. You're advanced? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> It's, it's also interesting, like my son, who's, you know, um, followed Akadasi since he was born, um, but he's, you know, he's, oh, God, today's Akadasi. Oh. You know? he, he's on the Anamoya platform of consciousness. I eat, therefore I am. <laughs> right? There's the different levels, Anamoya, Pranamoya, um, and then the, the top one is Anandamaya, right, which is... Uh, Krishna consciousness. <laughs> and only when you are involved in devotional service, like when you are doing service, then like I think that I can feel that energy, but or else like yeah, being yeah. lethargic. But just imagine, I don't think most of us would be here if it wasn't, if there wasn't like prasadam as part of Krishna consciousness. I, I, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's such a, you know, Srila Prabhupada would joke that this is a kitchen religion, right? Because it's so important. What is, <clears throat> in one sense, you could say the heartbeat of the temple is the, the deities. But in another sense, you could say the heartbeat of our temple, you know, what, where's all the activity going on day and night? Right? It's in the kitchen. We cook for the Lord six times, seven times a day at this temple, right? He, uh, and then prasadam distribution, feeding uh, the uh, the homeless and, all the things that we do with uh, with prasadam. <clears throat> yeah, I probably wouldn't be here if it was just like, you know, a little wafer and some wine or something. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. Okay, anything else on prasadam? Okay. So the next verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> One should practice nonviolence and truthfulness. <clears throat> should avoid thieving and be satisfied with possessing as much as he needs for his maintenance. He should abstain from sex life, perform austerity, be clean, study the Vedas, and worship the supreme form of the supreme personality of God. So again, <clears throat> this is a practice for a yogi. 
And you know, here it says, so we know that Srila Prabhupada would even say that, you know, the only yoga practice, I mean pakka, traditional yoga practice where you can actually be a grihast, you know, be married and have a house and home, is bhakti. Because the yogis are supposed to go to the forest and 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 do all these things. And the devotee can have a home and a job and a this and that and and still remember Krishna. It's the power of bhakti. Prabhupada writes towards the end, he quotes a great devotee, Narottam Das Thakur, a great devotee and acharya in the Gaudiya Vaishnava Sampradaya, says that all spiritual activities should be understood from three sources. Namely, saintly persons, what is the Sanskrit for that? Sadhu. Standard scriptures, Shastra, and the spiritual master, Guru. These three guides are very important for progress in spiritual life. The spiritual master prescribes standard literature for the prose prosecution of the yoga of devotional service, and he himself speaks only from scriptural reference. Therefore, reading standard scriptures is necessary for executing yoga. Practicing yoga without reading the standard literatures is simply a waste of time. So, uh, just one second. So, Guru Sadhu Shastra uh, is such an important point. They have to, it's just like, I mean, it's just like the attempt, of course, one could question about it, how successful it is in America, but they, right, there's the three divisions of government, right, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive, right, and they, they, they're supposed to be a checks and balance. So this is our checks and balance, guru, sadhu, and shastra. And the center is shastra. If someone says they're a guru, and then they're either misquoting Shastra or going against Shastra, just, um, just reject them wholesale. Forget it, bus. Because the, you know, if they're claiming to be something that they're not, then they're, they're, you know, that's, a, that's a cheating kind of thing, right? So, one, so sadhus, uh, and so it's not just guru either. There's the other devotees, the other sadhus. And it's not just the other devotees, it's also the guru. So there's this checks and balance to make sure that uh, things are pakka. To make sure that things are, are right. Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, people can, you know, whatever it is, grow a long beard and wear saffron clothes and claim to be. But what is, so um, when someone would ask you the problem, what do you think of so-and-so? he would say, what is their philosophy? What are they teaching? He wouldn't get into a whole personality thing. You know, this, you know I don't like this person or that person. He, he didn't want to go there. He would just say, uh, what are they teaching? And if they're repeating what Krishna says in the Gita and the Bhagavad very nice. And if they're saying, you know, I am you and you are me and we are all together and I'm God and you're God, and you know, then he would, he would get really heavy because, because he would, you know, People who are very honest and giving the real deal, they don't like cheaters. Right? So sometime, I won't mention the person, I would, no one here would even remember him, he's, he's no longer with us, but uh, um, he was in Hong Kong, this person who claimed to be a guru, and then he had a toothache. And Prabhupada says, so God has to go to the, uh, the dentist for a toothache. Right? So, um, so if somebody said that they were a servant of God, and he would, he would extend this to other religions. 
he wouldn't extend it just to you know Hinduism or Vaishnavism. But if someone claimed to be a, a servant of God and that we are servants of God, and they were repeating the words of Scripture, he'd say, very good. He would even say sometimes to a Christian group, uh, one time in Australia, um, and uh, what happened was he was showing him, he was showing this elderly uh, clergyman a uh, article about Rathayatra. And the man said, oh, I left my reading glasses in the car. And Prabhupada said, here, you can use mine. <laughs> and he put them on and he said, oh, I can, very clear. And Prabhupada said, birds of a feather. Right? You know that saying, birds of a feather flock together? There's that saying, right? So he had appreciation and he had great <clears throat> concern about people who claim to be something that they were. Because if they're not repeating what Shastra says, And that's that's problematic. So we also should be studying. We should know Shastra enough. We should know. Prabhupada would sometimes notice that some uh, Christians they their um, um, their Bibles were so like worn out, right? You know the edges of the pages because they were so familiar with them and reading them. So he said we should know the Bhagavad Gita like they know the Bible. <clears throat> and so we should be able to quote the Gita, and know where, where in the Gita, at least now, at least if nothing else, if, even if you don't quote, like when I was uh, a brahmachari, we didn't have phones or computers, so we actually memorized verses. So, if you, so that's still good to do. <laughs> but even if, at least you should know where to find it, so that, because if you, like I have this program on my computer, on my phone, uh, called uh, Pocket Vedas, right? So at least if I know it's in the seventh chapter, Right, then I can find it very quickly here. So we should learn the uh, scriptures. We should study because we, um, we need many sadhus, right? Sadhu, Shastra, Guru. Sadhu, Shastra, Guru, Vakya, Chitete, Koriya, Akya, the first Shastra, uh, Naratam Das Thakur says. That we, so um, this is our way. And so Shastra is the, is the North Star that you judge everyone else by. Any thoughts on that? Uh, Andy and then Rudas. My question was on the, from the first paragraph of the purport. Okay, we're going to the first paragraph of the purport. Is that okay? Sure, why not? Uh, it just says, uh, therefore in yoga practice, one not only must concentrate his mind on the person of Krishna, but must also worship the former deity of Krishna daily. Right, and I uh, and I do understand that he's purporting this knowledge, and he's, he's explaining this knowledge. He's bringing it up to the level of bhakti. Well, that's that was my question. Right. Is that really uh, included in bhakti? Because uh, we're always taught that deity the worship? chanting is all you need, uh, and of course, deity worship would only enhance it. But this is putting well, a requirement there's, of daily deity worship. Um, the, well. You know, like, I, like, we, like we have said many times before, Srila Prabhupada often talks in hyperbole. Yeah. So here he's emphasizing the, how wonderful deity worship is. Right? But if someone is like Haridas Thakur and is chanting all the time, the, the process of deity worship is, is um, it's compared to a railroad track right, that has two. Right? Because, because especially, let's say, you know, um, living here in the temple. So... Uh, you have the hearing and chanting, which is what is mainly emphasized 
in this section, because that's the, the Bhagavat Vidhi, it's called, right? The, and that's the most powerful. But there's also something called the Pancharatriki Vidhi. And that is, um, it's formed around deity worship. And because when, when you are a pujari or when you're worshiping the deity or, or living in a temple, you have a very regulated life and a very clean life because you can't go on the altar without clean dress. You can't have, you can't even take a meal and then go on the altar. You have to take a bath and put on, at least put on new cloth, right? Because, you know, pujaris have to be that clean. That's our standard here, right? So you get up early in the morning, you rise at four o'clock, RT's at 4.30, so you're, you're, you're regulated. So you're very much uh, also by, by that, by having a deity that you're taking care of, you're simultaneously in the mode of goodness because you're clean and you're, uh, and you're regulated, which are, which are good things. So a very advanced devotee can just get absorbed in hearing and chanting. But Prabhupada gave us deity worship for, uh, to purify us and also the householder, you know, they're so absorbed in forms all day, home and family and children. So now here's a form you can meditate, the form of the Lord. That also helps us advance in our Krishna consciousness. So actually there's five most potent items of bhakti. Hearing the Srimad Bhagavatam, chanting the holy name, worshiping the deity, associating with devotees, and either living in a holy place or making your home a holy place. Is that all right? Gurdas? The spiritual master also gives us the deity to uh, cleanse our minds, which are in Prabhupada's words, full of stool. Uh, we, we, we gaze at the form of the Lord, which is absolute, and we chant his name, which is also absolute, and that's like a double whammy, so to speak. My question was before, um, or just a comment, that devotees would also ask Prabhupada about what other devotees in the movement would say, would tell them. And sometimes Prabhupada would uh, say, do as so-and-so suggests, or... Right, uh, as long as they're referring to, yeah, because they're sadhus, and then uh, as long as they're repeating Shastra. Now, repeating Shastra doesn't have to be like a parrot. Um, Srila Prabhupada would also say that we should, <clears throat> we should teach Shastra in our own words, so that according to time, place, and circumstance, so people you know, um, can relate to it. <clears throat> And we also apply it according to the time, the place, and the circumstance, right? So like Vanaprastha's, um, so I guess I probably, I guess, I guess I'm a Vanaprastha. I mean, we never, I guess, definitely we're not going to have any more kids, my wife and I. So, but it says, you know, they should go to the forest and wear tree bark. Well, I'm probably not going to do that, but there's a, uh, there's the tree bark, <clears throat> but there's also applying that in, in, in our life today, or, or you know, the essential thing about being renounced and not you know, just trying to uh, accumulate more and more when, you know, uh, when, when, as one gets older. Um, Prabhupada would say that uh, at the age of 50, Krishna is, it's a tap on the shoulder that you're not gonna live forever, and that it's time to start getting serious about spiritual life. I don't, there's no one here in this room who's 50 yet, except me. Right, Pinoji? 
Yes, wait, wait for the microphone now. So there's always a question comes, you know, time, circumstances, and place, right? Desha Kalapatra in Sanskrit, yes. The question comes, how much you redraw your boundaries and how much you, you know, where you say, no, this is, this it, no more, because time changes, uh, yeah. circumstances changes, you know, environments question. and all, you know, so it's very hard. You think today this is right, and tomorrow you say, you know, maybe not work this way. Then you say, this is right, and then you just keep saying. Exactly. Pretty soon it's become like, you know, a line in the sand, you know, just keep drawing and keep changing, <laughs> you know. That's a great question. So um, <clears throat> in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu in the sixth chapter of Nectar Devotion, Srila Prabhupada talks about the difference between um, principles and details. Principles are things that never change and that should never be adjusted or else you become one of those bogus gurus. And details are things that can be adjusted according to, as you say, time, place, and circumstance. So one time a devotee asked Srila Prabhupada, how do you know the difference between the two? Because it's a very important distinction, right? And his, he gave a cryptic answer. He said, that takes some intelligence, <laughs> right? Because hopefully no one will, in ISKCON will ever change, you know, that we're part, we're part and parcel of Krishna, that we're souls, that we're, um, that, you know, um, are, that we are eternal servants of the Lord, that the material world is dukkalayam, asashvitam, it's temporary and full of miseries, things like that. But um, how we design a temple, that may adjust according to... Um, different things, right? Like, you know, like for example, in our in the new temple that we're building here, we're having we're gonna have some classrooms for children and things like that. I don't recall ever seeing any classrooms that like in uh, in Tirupati temple, for example, right? In uh, in Balaji. Um, so, you know, we adjust according to to needs or um, we in Krishna in ISKCON we're very into uh, printing Srila Prabhupada's books and distributing those books. Um, but now we can also um, give people a website to visit and read the same thing electronically, right? Or I, like I said, I have, I have everything Prabhupada ever wrote or spoke on this machine, little machine here, right? So we, so we, adjust those, we can adjust those things according to time, place, and circumstance. Um, even even uh, this, it never came to this, but Srila Prabhupada's guru once said that um, if, if you go to the, because they were only preaching in India, and he said if you go to the West and you even have to serve chicken, do what you have to do to get them to hear about Krishna. Of course, and Prabhupada never had to do that. He never did that, right? But, but the point was that he was willing to even make that kind of adjustment if it meant that they would get the essence. Obviously, the idea would be to ultimately make those people vegetarian. So we, so it does take a little um, um, intelligence to uh, to know what we can adjust, and the, and, the, and naturally, this discussion comes up in every faith organization. Christians argue a lot about can you use a guitar in the services, or should it just be the traditional organ, for example, or the Catholics they changed uh, in, in Vatican II. 
which was this huge conference that had lasted over four years with thousands of people involved, and it was all on this topic. What can we adjust? So they adjusted that the, all the services did, no longer had to be in Latin. Right? So you go to a Catholic church, especially in America, it won't be in Latin. It'll be in English. So, uh, so ISKCON also deals with that. Right? Does everyone always have to wear a dhoti, for example, is a question that comes up, right? Um, and also the things were different in Srila Prabhupada's time. Every, almost everyone lived in the temple. You either, basically you could, you could tell if you know, they were a devotee or not, depending on where they, their sleeping bag was. <laughs> was it on the property or something? You know, and now, uh, you know, and you're an example of this, you know, 90% of our devotees live outside the temple. Actually, it's high, much higher than 90% when you think about it. We get, you know what, you know, how many people will we get? You know, even your average Sunday feast here, we distribute about 500 plates of prashadam. And there's only 20 devotees living on the property here. So, um, so that's a great question. But, uh, and I think every, I think it's probably since time immemorial, I was reading a quote from Socrates, Socrates, saying that this new generation is terrible. They don't listen to their parents, they're belligerent. <laughs> oh, this is. <laughs> but that's a relative, you know. My parents may be saying the same thing about me and the previous that too, right? That's right. So yes. every generation is different than previous. Right. And they will say, well, this is terrible. So I was terrible. Now I tell my daughter's travel, then she yes. tell her yes. travel. So that's a really... But I think, I agree with you, and I think for, let's say, a lot of the people, some of the people in this room who are first-generation immigrants, in other words, their parents from India, they were born in India, they came here. Um, my experience in, in ISKCON and also just in, in the Indian community and also in the Pakistani community, which, although different faiths, similar experiences in this regard, um, is that there's, I think, greater challenges because the way they were brought up in India is, is vastly different than the way most parents in America bring up their children. And so their kids go to a school where all the kids are brought up in a certain way and, you know, and so that uh, challenge for you, and you've done so wonderfully, your daughters are such nice people, um, but that is, that is a challenge you know, for first-generation immigrants to, to another country where uh, it's, it's very different. Sometimes you know? I feel we jump to two generations. Yeah, yeah, right. Because, in you know, traditionally, when I first moved to India, I first moved to India in the 80s. And it was still very much like that, that, you know, what to speak of a child with his father, a younger brother to an older brother, it was just... You know, the older brother says, jump, and the younger brother says, how high? <laughs> I, I saw many families like that, uh, right? You know, in the 80s is, you know, f almost 40 years ago. Um, and now, it, it's of course, it's changing greatly in India as well. But the whole teaching is now is why. Of course, everybody why? asks yeah. why. Yes. So, uh, their rights to ask why should I jump? But yes, but you know, why is good, you know, just like, let's, here's a phenomena that I saw a lot, okay, um, even today, but 90s and the 2000s. Uh, 
So a family comes to, from America, India to America. They bring their, uh, so father has a good job and maybe wife also has a good job. They bring their parents to live with them, okay? And then the children are going to local uh, school. The children are seeing, they love their grandparents, they think they're wonderful people, but they see this kind of hocus pocus, worshiping Ganesh and ringing a bell and incense and you know, maybe a whole myriad of deities, you know, the whole thing, and they just think, you know, it doesn't jive at all with what they're learning in school and science and even in Christianity if they're going to a Christian school. So one thing that the parents were very, I saw they were very happy when they came in contact with ISKCON because ISKCON could teach their, those, their children the philosophy because the, parent, the grandparents generally didn't talk philosophy. They did their puja, right? But they, could, they actually found some reason to be proud of their religion by understanding the philosophy behind it. So that's, a, that's an important, so we do want to teach the why here, you know, um, and we do want to teach the Gita to all ages, um, and especially our children, so that they understand that it's, actually it's something to soup, really be proud of, to be a devotee of Krishna and to know the Gita. Is that all right? Okay, should we move on? Any other questions? Oh, boy. Uh, fixing the vital air, is that what we're on? Five, sorry, my computer, it's, it's his fault, not mine. One must, one, oh no, I, oh, yeah, oh yeah, one must observe silence, acquire steadiness, so imagine you're a yogi out in the forest, by, uh, acquire steadiness by practicing different yogic postures, control the breathing of the vital air, withdraw the senses from sense objects, and thus concentrate the mind on the heart. Fixing the vital air in the mind in one of the six circles of vital air circulation within the body, thus concentrating one's mind on the transcendental pastimes of the Supreme Personality of God, it is called samadhi, or samadhana, of the mind. By, this process, by these processes, so remember, this is a practice of the yogis. By these processes, or any other true process, one must control the contaminated, unbridled mind, which is always attracted by material enjoyment, and thus fix himself in thought of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. After controlling one's mind and sitting postures, one should spread a seat in a secluded and sanctified place, sit there in an easy posture, keeping the body erect, and practice breath control. The yoga, yogi should clear the passage of vital air by breathing in the following manner. First, he should inhale very deeply, then hold the breath in and finally exhale. Or reversing the process, the yogi can first exhale, then hold the breath outside and finally inhale. This is done so that the mind may become steady and free from external disturbances. Okay. So, what is this called? Pranayama. Right. How many of you have done pranayama in your life? Okay. What are you, what's your experience when you do pranayama? It's wonderful, first class. Others? Why is it wonderful, first class? It feels purifying. Okay. What else? Yes. The mind actually calms down. It gets quieter. Yes. 
Okay, anyone else want to add to that? Similar? Okay. So, um, a lot of these purports juxtapose uh, yogic practice of pranayama and bhakti. So let's hear what, so therefore I chose this purport to read a little bit. These breathing exercises are performed to control the mind and fix it on the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That's the ultimate purpose. Often um, when we, uh, the, the not connection to bhakti part of pranayama is often to focus on the breathing itself. Right? And there's a reason for that. Uh, we've explained this last week, I believe, because the mind tends to think about the future and worry about the future and lament about the past. But you can't think about a breath, five breaths from now. And you don't really lament so much about, oh, that was a lousy breath that I had. Right? You, so you really are very present if you're just focusing on the breath. Right, so that's one of the uh, things. So here, uh, the, the, in, in bhakti yoga, we can focus on the breath and think of the Lord. So, uh, no, Savai Mana Krishna Padhara Vindayo. The devotee Ambarish Maharaj fixed his mind on the lotus feet of Krishna 24 hours a day. The process of Krishna consciousness is to chant Hare Krishna and to hear the sound attentive, attentively so that the mind is fixed upon the transcendental vibration of Krishna's name, which is non-different from Krishna the personality. The real purpose of controlling the mind by the prescribed method of clearing the passage of the life air is achieved immediately if one fixes his mind directly on the lotus feet of Krishna. The Hatha Yoga system or breathing system is especially recommended for those who are very much abs very absorbed in the concept of bodily existence. But one who can form, perform the simple process of chanting Hare Krishna can fix the mind more easily. So yes, the, the, the yuga dharma is chanting, is, naga, is nama sankirtan. Now, that doesn't mean if you, uh, if you, as long as you don't lose sight of that goal, there is nothing wrong with doing some pranayama before you chant. It may actually make you a little sattvic. Um, and this is recommended, I'm not just mentioning this capriciously, it's also recommended in the 11th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. My computer's not cooperating. 11911. I just remember because it was such an interesting number. Why is this? Anyway. Um, Verse, uh, so also there it's mentioned about, uh, um, it's interesting because it's both Kapila Dave mentions and Krishna, men this is actually Krishna talking to Uddhava in the Uddhava Gita. Do you have it? I have it. Yeah, I got it, Mataji. Thank you. Uh, having perfected the yoga sitting postures and conquering the breathing process, one should make the mind steady by detachment and regulated practice of yoga. Thus one should carefully fix the mind on the single goal of yoga practice. So even the whole idea of hatha yoga. Um, Prabhupada would sometimes criticize it, but you have to understand the understanding of it. If you think that that's the, that's the goal, if you think that just being healthy and being able to do some really cool yogic postures is a goal, then that's what he would be critical of. 
If you do yoga to keep your body healthy, and especially to keep your body healthy so that you can do more service to Krishna, then that's seeing the Krishna Sambandha, you know, the relationship with Krishna in such practices, right? Because uh, one time, I think it was in Juhu, someone, uh, because they had heard Srila Prabhupada criticize in a certain context, and somebody said, oh, Prabhupada, look at that guy over there doing yoga. What a, what a f- rascal. And Prabhupada said, no, no, it is very good for health. <laughs> so um, when really, when before we quote Prabhupada out of context, because he would talk according to time, place, and circumstance, we have to know the, the, the context in which he was speaking. So uh, I, I know some people who do pranayama, five, ten minutes of it before they chant, and they find that it's, can be, it's, it's very, it can be very helpful. You know, so we're not saying you have to do pranayama. Don't, don't misquote me. <laughs> you don't have to do pranayama before chanting Hare Krishna. That's, there's, no, uh, there's no hard and fast rules. But if, but if all of you have been, many of you have been saying that the, the effect that it has on you, so sometimes it can be a good thing to... Uh, to do if you find it helpful. The whole idea is anukulyasya sankalpa pratikulyasya varjanam. That practicing devotional service to accept things that are favorable and to reject things that are unfavorable. So if, if doing, uh, so there's all different kinds of uh, pranayama. Um, and it, it, it is, if you're going to do it, um, good to try to find some bona fide practice of it. What is that? Analoma viloma? Where you... you Right, and you, you alternate uh, breathing through the different things, and uh, and certain some of the more advanced uh, pranayama actually is it's recommended that you don't do until you are really under the guidance of a proper person and you've um, excelled on some of the earlier practices. Similarly, with uh, practicing yoga, um, you can mess up your back <laughs> if you if you don't have a teacher and do it properly. So, okay. Um, it is stated in the Bhagavad Gita, this is the second paragraph, one's mind is his enemy and one's mind is also his friend. Anyone, anyone ever had that experience? Yeah. Um, its position varies according to the different dealings of the living entity. If we divert our mind to thoughts of material enjoyment, then our mind becomes an enemy. And if we concentrate our mind on the lotus feet of Krishna, our mind is a friend. By the yoga system of Puraka, Kumbhaka, and Rechaka, or by directly fixing the mind on the sound vibration of Krishna, or the form of Krishna, the same purpose is achieved. In Bhagavad Gita, so there he's talking very highly of it, right? In Bhagavad Gita, it is said that one must practice the breathing exercises, uh, abhyasa yoga yuktena. By virtue of this, these processes of control, the mind cannot wander to external thoughts. Chaitatsa nanya gamina. Thus, one can fix his mind constantly on the supreme personality of Godhead and attain Him. And then Prabhupada goes on again to say, but remember, it's harder to do that than just taking to the chanting process. Confirm, no problem. <laughs> um, any thoughts on this? Yes, Andy? Microphone? It's way over there. There's actually two microphones. <laughs> no, just a quick uh, thought, because I was watching some videos on YouTube, and one was a talk by a very 
great yogi, unfortunately I forget his name, but he wasn't talking about bhakti yogi, but he's one of those people that can control his heart rate, do all these mm -hmm. mystical things, right? right? But he made the statement from his viewpoint that the whole purpose of yoga was so you could properly meditate. So right. you can sit comfortably. Once right. you've achieved all that, you can sit very well, keep your spine very straight, and, and right. have good meditation. And that's where, what we, that's where Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra come about, right? Because we, that person may be good to consult for doing yoga, but you wouldn't really want to consult him for spiritual uh, consciousness because Krishna says something different. He says, Yoginam apisarvesham makatenantaratmanam shadavam mateyomam sameyu tatamavumataha. He says, of all yogis, the one who always thinks of me is the highest yogi. So he missed that part. Meditation is being valuable. And so if you want valuable meditation, Well, actually, it's going to come up in a, in a verse yeah. in a minute from now. But uh, meditation is not as valuable as, it's not as practical as hearing and chanting, right? You know, like if we just tell you to think about God right now, think about Lord Ram, right? Okay, now compare the ease of that to hearing the Ramayan and hearing all about, you know, uh, you know, Ravana and, and you, know, you know, kidnapping Sita and Hanuman getting the medicine and, and, and uh, you know, and the, monk, the monkey warriors and building the bridge to Lanka, and, right? That, it, that fills your consciousness so much easier than just, right? So, so hearing and chanting is uh, more potent than, than just meditating. And this, this is important because there's, uh, even in Vrindavan, there's two schools of thought on this. But Lord Chaitanya was very clear that, uh, that the best way to meditate on Krishna is Kirtaniya Sadahari, always chanting his name, chanting his glories. Wasn't the Bhagavatam given before the time of Chaitanya? Just to be clear. I'm not, yeah. 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 So, so Prabhupada is explaining something that was set before yes. Chaitanya, yes. but of course and, he's and a Lord big Chaitanya has yeah. studied the Bhagavatam carefully. Okay, how are we doing time-wise? Oh, do you have a question? Yeah, um, microphone for Pinod. Question about this mind. The mind? Mind, friend, and, you know, enemy or whatever. Uh -huh. So I think, uh, I sometimes I notice that mind creates more problem than actually it is. You know? Yeah, you noticed. Yeah, <laughs> so I see a lot of people. I mean, sometimes I take this scenario like sadhu have nothing, right? And they're still happy, enjoying life. And other people have a lot of things, but they just worry. I mean, the mind is bothering them. Yeah. And they just live miserably. When I was living the life of a monk, which I did for about 11 years, so much more peaceful. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have. Imagine I didn't. I didn't pay taxes. I didn't worry about money. I, um, I just uh, peaceful life. I didn't you know? Didn't have to worry about a home. Didn't have to worry about you know, so many things. Um, but so Krishna says again to quote verse: Udarat atmanatmanam natmanam avasadiyat atmayavihiatmano bandur. Bandur means what in Sanskrit? Friend. Abhayabha vipuratmanaha. What does vipur mean? 
enemy. So, so, and we can, even on a very uh, basic level, we can try to control our mind. For example, uh, I have this little joke with my wife that uh, if we're driving, let's say on the uh, Beltway, right, where there's a lot of crazy drivers, anyone disagree with that? Okay, we have, you know. Um, so someone's weaving in and out of traffic. So the tendency, right, is generally to think, that idiot's going to get himself killed, that hotshot, whatever, right? Um, so my wife and I, we look at each other, we say, probably a man driving his pregnant wife to the hospital to give birth. Right? So in other words, your mind can think that idiot, or your mind can think, now of course, you know, that maybe the person is an idiot, but the point is that we can, you can look at things from different angles of vision. So what we're, what we, how we try to train ourselves is that in so many things in life, there's a stimulus. Something happens to us. And then, you know, there's always, there's a response, that idiot, you know, or, or whatever, right? You know, um, and the idea is that to put a pause between the stimulus and the response. And instead of to just, whatever first comes into the mind, like a knee-jerk reaction, think of what would be a more proper reaction. What would be a more God-conscious reaction? What would be a more friendly reaction? You know, why can't I assume, in general at least, good intentions? Why do I assume bad intentions with someone that I don't know or met for the first time? Or because they're different because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or because of what country they're from or, or all those things. When you went to India, leaving all this here, and with very limited things, right? So that was the only mind you set up a certain way, so that helped you to live in that environment. It's not air conditioned, not a car, which makes so just a mental how how we think. Yeah, um, I was younger then. That's one thing, <laughs> but um, it was also because I didn't live in India. I lived in Vrindavan, so I don't know if I would have the same thoughts if I lived in um, Delhi. <clears throat> not, no, nothing against anyone from Delhi here, uh, <laughs> but it was it was such a spiritual experience, um, living in the holy place, that um, that outweighed whatever physical inconveniences were there. You know, sometimes electricity would be out for six or seven hours a day. You know, in 110 degree weather or something like that. But you know. It was actually a good way to practice. Krishna talks about uh, that we should practice tolerance, right? Because <clears throat> we're not a very tolerant society today, right? If you're, if you're kind of well-to-do, you uh, go from your house into your uh, heated or air-conditioned garage, you turn on your car, you turn on the air conditioning or the heat, and you press a button and the garage door opens up and then you drive to work and you go into uh, your, uh, your, your garage at work and then take the elevator up to your office and then you go on your smartphone and you order your lunch and you never have to worry about what it's hot or cold outside, right? You, know, you just, um, you know, we're, we're not uh, a very tolerant uh, society. So I thought, I, uh, you know, I didn't live in a village, I lived in a town, Vrindavan, but I visited villages and uh, I saw that people could be really happy um, with, with less. Isn't it? It's in the mind, yeah. We can actually be happy with less. And therefore, like when, we, when our electricity went out here, 
where we live, we just live close by. Um, during uh, one of the storms this year, it was like, uh, you know, it's <laughs> just like, uh, I feel like I'm back home in India. <laughs> right? Whereas other people, you know, they couldn't, they, you know, they, uh, the only thing that saved them was going in their car and then charging their phone by uh, the car because they couldn't charge their phone. <laughs> so we can become um, artificially dependent on things. Is that all right? Anything else? Okay, I think we have time for one or two more verses. And then we will yield to the Maha Mantra. We'll have a, a, a chanting session. By practicing the process of pranayama, that's, breath, that's breathing exercises, <clears throat> there is a connection. Everyone was saying how they feel peaceful. So everyone knows there's a connection between your breathing and your mind. Right? Even if you know nothing about pranayama, you just watch old movies in America. Right? What do they say? Take a few deep breaths. Right? If you're really worked up, take a few deep breaths. Right? And there's a connection between the mind and the breath. It's, it's, it's everywhere. One can eradicate the contamination of his physiological condition. In other words, you can be healthy. And by concentrating the mind, one can become free from all sinful activities. By restraining the senses, one can free himself from material association. And by meditating on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, one can become free from the three modes of material attachment. When the mind is perfectly purified by the practice of yoga, one should concentrate on the tip of the nose with half-closed eyes and see the form of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is a cheerful, lotus-like countenance uh, with with ruddy eyes like the interior of, of a lotus and the swarthy body like the petals of a blue lotus. He bears a conch, disc, and mace in his three hands. Purport Prabhupada says, and I think this is the last one we'll do today. The color of the supreme of the personality of God at Krishna is described here as nilopaladhala, meaning that it is like that of a lotus flower with petals tinted blue and white. People always ask why Krishna is blue. The color of the Lord has not been imagined by an artist. It is described in the authoritative scripture. In the Brahma Samhita also, the color of Krishna's body is compared to that of a bluish cloud. The color of the Lord is not poetic imagination. There are authoritative descriptions in the Brahma Samhita, Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, and many of the Puranas about the Lord, his body, his weapons, and other paraphernalia. So um, this is one of those things where, you know, in much of life, we, we value ascending knowledge, <clears throat> right? Like, uh, anyone here work for NIH? Okay, there's one person, all right. So, so this is not a put-down of NIH. I, I actually have a lot of friends who work there, <laughs> even in my field of practice, which is, uh, I know all the... Have you ever met the ombudsman in NIH? The people who deal with conflicts? Good, so you're lucky you don't have to deal with that. <laughs> But it's, it's ascending knowledge in the sense that you, you make experiments and you keep trying, you know. Um, I know when I had my open heart surgery, I went there because they wanted to do a little test on, uh, on me before I had the surgery. And, you know, and, and they come up with, with you know, the, the way that uh, heart surgery is done today is very different than in my father's time, right? And cures for different things that come up. And, it, you know, it's one way of attaining knowledge. But when we hear that Krishna's 
you know, <clears throat> plays a flute. Well, you know, why doesn't he play a slide trombone? Or, you know, or the piano or, you know, right? <clears throat> That's descending knowledge. That's knowledge coming from the scriptures. And, and it's really up to us whether to accept it or not, but it is what it is. And that's not the general way we accept knowledge so much in this world, right? You know, I remember when I had, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was a baby boomer, so uh, we used to wear buttons that said, question authority, right? And don't trust anyone over 30. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> but you know, it, it, the Shastra says, this is Krishna. And you know, and, and so, so we also uh, value descending knowledge that comes from the... That doesn't mean you can't question, you know, why does the Shastra say this, or how am I to understand that? No, we're not blind followers by any, any stretch of the imagination. That's, that's rejected, actually. Um, what is it? Blind following and... What is the word? Um, thank you. Blind, very good. Blind following and absurd inquiries are rejected, right? So one can respectfully say, well, why, you know, why is it like this, why is that? But ultimately, certain things, especially about Krishna and his pastimes in, in the spiritual world, they just are what they are. They're not subject to uh, Jungian or Freudian interpretations. Blind following or absurd inquiries. Or, yeah, yeah. No, blind, in other words, just saying, oh. Yeah, like, you know, hey, great, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, great, you know. No, you know, we, 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 we want to um, uh, understand Krishna consciousness through logic and through, uh, um, through our intelligence. But there does come a time when... Um, uh, certain things in the Shastra, like about Krishna, are just what they are. So time is up. Uh, we will uh, continue this chapter next week, 1030. Um, be there or be square. And happy Ram Nomi to everyone. What a beautiful day. Uh, and we have wonderful festivities coming up uh, in the next few hours. And right now, we will be doing a meditation session for the next 27 minutes. Thank you, Hare Krishna.